All right, so let's turn in the book of Ephesians to chapter 6. Last week, we really came out of a, what I would say a very popular section of Scripture, right? The, the whole armor of God. In verse 17, we considered the last two pieces of the spiritual armor. It was to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that word take is a command. It's interesting because he's been participle, 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 and then he comes back with a command in verse 17 to take up or to grab these last two pieces of armor. And it's kind of like as you're leaving the house, right? What are the last things you put on as a Roman soldier? It would be their helmet, and then they would put their sword. It was the last things that they grab. You come to the next section here, and, and he starts verse 18 with the word praying. And you're like, well, where does the, how does this fit with the whole armor of God? Well, I believe it's still part of the armor of God. It's just not identified with a Roman piece of armor, but it's still part of the armor of God. And we're going to look at two descriptions here that are going to give us the, the means or the manner by which we should take up our helmet of salvation and by which we should take up the sword of the spirit. It's the manner in which we're to do this. It's going to be done in a constant state of dependence and alertness. That's, that's the gist of today's message. Now, why is this necessary? Why is it necessary to take up these last two pieces of armament with, in prayerfulness and alertness? Well, because like we've been saying, we have a superhuman battle. We've got a spiritual battle raging all around us. And don't, don't think for a minute that the spiritual battle is just to protect you from doing licentious activities, you know, sometimes you, you grow up in church and you think, man, as long as I'm not committing adultery, as long as I'm not killing people, as long as I'm not cussing and drinking and smoking and chewing, as long as I'm a good moral person, then I'm spiritual. Don't fall into that lull. That's not spirituality at all. That's morality. Now, when you walk by means of the Spirit, the Spirit of God's going to produce morality in your life. It's not that we're discounting that. But understand this, that when we walk by means of the Spirit, or when we are attacked by the enemy, oftentimes that comes by way of thinking. That comes by way of challenging and trying to guide and conform your thinking to the way that the world thinks. And I will tell you this, we studied the book of Ecclesiastes. What did we learn? The world's wisdom, you can compare it to a pile of something in your backyard if you own dogs. That's what the world's wisdom provides. It provides nothing but futility and emptiness and worthlessness. And it makes sense why people would even consider taking their life if they are occupied with the world's wisdom because there's nothing there. It's vanity. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Make no mistake, you're in a battle. You may not be committing adultery and, and screaming vulgarities at somebody, and you may be think you're doing all right, but there is a battle for your mind as a believer in Jesus Christ. We've got to be aware it's going on at all times. So this battle is superhuman. You know, it reminds me of another passage. It's just a great cross-reference for this section. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we walk in the flesh, i.e. in the body, we do not war according to the flesh. Our battle armament is not your and my human reliance strategies to overcome this spiritual enemy. For the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We've been looking at our weapons of warfare in Ephesians chapter six, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. See where the enemy is trying to attack. It's in our mind. It is in the way we think. It is in things that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And let's not be deceived. The world is very aggressive right now. 
very aggressive for the minds of believers, young people, old people. Understand there's a battle raging. This is what we're trying to understand. And, you know, it reminds me of a story. There was a, uh, a group in World War I known as the Lost Battalion. Anyone ever heard this story, by the way? Kind of first time I've heard it this week. Really interesting story. This name was given to nine companies of the United States 77th Division, roughly 554 men who were isolated by German forces in World War I. They entered the Argonne Forest. They thought they were being flanked by their allies, the French on the left. They thought they had two units of American soldiers flanking them on the right. They thought they were going in to dominate and control the Germans, but the French got delayed. Maybe they were inventing French fries. I don't know. They got delayed. They weren't there. These men went into the forest thinking they had flanks protection around them, and they got surrounded by the German army. They got cornered, and for six days, they were fighting for their lives. Every messenger they tried to send out to, to, to call for help, either got lost or got captured or killed by the Germans. And you know what they relied upon? Pigeons, carrier pigeons. Well, the pigeons weren't working either and they weren't, they weren't trained too well. So they were relying on carrier pigeons. One message was actually delivered, kind of interesting. They were running short on food. They were running short on water. Headquarters did not know that they were trapped in the forest. And so what did headquarters start doing? They started dropping bombs on the forest with their men there. This group started with 554 men. 197 were killed in action. 150 went missing or were taken prisoner. 194 men made it out and were rescued. Kind of as a comical note, one one of the messages that reached headquarters was this. It was from a carrier pigeon. It says, we are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. (laughs) Poor guys. But they made it out. And you know, what that story illustrates this is this. When a Christian is in conflict with the enemy, they need to stay in touch with headquarters. That's the deal. When you lose touch with headquarters, you don't benefit from the resources that are yours that headquarters can send in. And that's really the illustration of prayer this morning. And so we're going to look at the value of prayer in our spiritual battle. Verse 18 reads this, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, praying, it doesn't have necessarily special meaning. It means exactly what we think. It's talking to God, speaking or making requests of God. But what's interesting here is Paul uh, includes this participle in the middle voice, which means that you have to make a choice to do this, okay? This isn't something you just, you accidentally do. You're, you're making a conscious decision to stay in touch with headquarters. You're making a conscious, conscious decision to stay independent on the Lord. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not identified. You, you can't find a Roman piece of armament that this is identified with, but this is still part of, the, part of the spiritual armor of God. This is part of the connection, if you will, to the Lord in utilizing this spiritual tools to fight this spiritual enemy. And so he's going to provide some qualifications. Notice, you go back to verse 18, you kind of see them as we go. He's going to say, praying always. So, so how often should you pray? Well, he uses the word always. Always is a word which means in every time and every season. Now, the question becomes, there, there's never a season in which a believer should take a day off from praying. Now, 
if I went around the room, this is like, this is like one of those messages where you can shame everybody in the room, right? Hey, how's your prayer life? And everyone's like, oh man, <laughs> the worst question you can get at church, right? Because typically what's the answer? It could be better, right? It could be better. We could be doing it more. It could be doing it more consistently. Part of, part of the reason we don't do it, I think, is we need to be convinced of the value of it. If, if we're convinced of the value of it, then we don't, it doesn't become a, a checklist on our phone. It's actually something that we long to do. You know, I was reminded of a, a, a monk years ago. I can't remember if it was, I always get Brother Andrew and Brother Lawrence confused. But anyways, this guy wrote a book and he used to say that he was in constant fellowship with the Lord throughout the day. And when they actually dismissed him from his job, which he was a, a dishwasher and a cook, and they had to go to their room to pray, it actually disrupted his fellowship with the Lord. Because <laughs> it was so planned and organized and stale, but he had been fellowshipping with the Lord in prayer throughout the day. That's where we want to be, is that constant connection with the Lord. Now, why should we never take a day off? Well, guess what? Your enemy never takes a day off. You know, it's one thing, you know, there's a story of, of War I where two armies, I think it was the British and the Germans, on Christmas Day, they started singing Christmas carols. They were, they were separated by a battlefield. They started singing Christmas carols, and then they would sing them back and forth to each other. And finally, some Germans came out with their guns dropped, hands up, and they came out and they greeted one another on the battlefield. And for a day, they ceased fire. But you know why? Because both sides determined they would. <laughs> Your enemy is not ceasing fire. So there's never a day that we want to take off from prayer. And this is one of those things we've got to realize. Nuclear wars cannot be won with rifles. You, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And so if you're going to fight these spiritual battles, these satanic attacks that we looked at all the way back up, what was that in verse 12, what our true enemies are, you need spiritual resources to deal with it. Your, our fleshly reliant strategies aren't going to work. And this is why the whole passage, he just keeps driving this through. Now, what should the prayer be consisted of? What's the content of prayer? Well, it looks like he's saying the same thing, but there's a little subtle distinction here in the words. He, he says that they're to include prayer, which are specific requests made of God, and then supplication. This is when you make known your specific needs to God. So you see the, the subtle difference. I've got these specific needs, and then based on those needs, I make specific requests. You know, too many believers, and, and I get it, there's sometimes you're you're in a hurry, you're going into somewhere, you think of the Lord and you're just like, Lord, bless me. And then you're in, right? But this is talking about much more than that. These are very specific prayer requests. And typically when you have to formulate a specific prayer request, what does that require you to do? Stop, think, evaluate, understand where you're at so that you actually have an intelligible thing to pray, a specific thing that you're looking for. And that's so important when we talk about prayer. In fact, we're going to see when Paul gets to verses 19 and 20, he's going to do the same thing to the saints. He's going to say, you know what? I have these specific needs and these specific prayer requests for you to pray for me. And so he's going to ask them to join him in those. Then we see that there's a sphere of praying. And notice back in verse 18, that we are to be praying always with all prayer and supplication in what sphere? In the spirit. That's what he's saying there. And so it indicates that the, at every, every time a believer prays, they should desire to be under control and guidance of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God wants to influence believers, wants to influence the way that we view things, wants to influence the way that we pray, the specific requests that we make. Hopefully we've graduated from praying for a Lamborghini to 
to praying for something that's more in line with God's will. Now, if there's a Lamborghini owner in here, I'm sorry to offend you. Congratulations on that purchase. But hopefully we're, we're graduating away from these kind of prayer requests more in line with what the Spirit of God has. And I will tell you this, whatever the prayer request is, I guarantee the Spirit of God wants to occupy you with Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to do. That's his ultimate goal. Whatever is going on in your life circumstantially, trials, that's the design for it. That's what God is after because he knows when you're occupied with him, life will not taste any sweeter. The air will not smell any better. The food you eat will not taste any better, et cetera, et cetera. We can use all these illustrations. This is the sphere of prayer. Now, the good news for the believer is this. Even when we don't know how to pray, the spirit of God indwelling you undertakes for you and intercedes for you and prays for you according to the will of God. What a blessing. I mean, we are blessed. Look at Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray. By the way, I, we made this point when we studied through Romans, but notice it doesn't say for sometimes we don't know or if we don't know. What does it say? When we don't know. You don't know. <laughs> I don't know many times what we should pray. But you know what? The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that incredible? Well, how blessed are you as a believer to have him doing that for you constantly in your life. Parents, aren't you glad that your saved children have the Spirit of God indwelling them, praying for them that they would walk in the will of God, praying for them for things according to the will of God? What a, 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 a truth to rejoice in. So instead of trying to bang our heads against the wall, which is what we do when we're trying to figure out the will of God, don't we? I mean, we'll try anything. I mean, we, we start seeing signs in the clouds. Oh, that was, oh, that was God. Oh, uh. We try to just bang in our head against the wall trying to figure out the will of God. We can rejoice that the Spirit of God, even when we are clueless, we have no idea the Spirit of God is interceding for you for God's will to happen in your life. Wow, that's encouraging. That's one thing we should recognize. The other thing we should reckon, recognize is instead of focusing your energy on banging your head against the wall to find out the will of God, why don't we do it the biblical way? which is, Romans 12.1 kind of shares with us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You present yourself to the Lord by faith. Why? Because Romans 6 just said that you died with Christ to sin. You were raised to newness of life with Jesus Christ. And thus we are to present our bodies to the Lord. Stop presenting our bodies to sin. In other words, let me summarize it quickly. Be in fellowship with the Lord value being in fellowship with the Lord. When we are presented by faith to the Lord, look what happens. First of all, it's holy. You are setting apart something that God can use for a sacred purpose and use. And you're thinking, my body, my fatty liver, my 20 pounds overweight, my you know, toenail, my gangrene, toe, whatever, not gangrene, that would be really bad. He can use my body. That's exactly what he wants to use. You got a body today? Everyone in here I see has a body. God can use you. Are you willing to, by faith, present the members of your body to the Lord? He can use it. 
He wants to use it. He wants to fulfill his purposes in. So it's holy. It's set apart to God. It's acceptable to God because you're doing it by faith. And guess what? It is your reasonable service. This means that it just makes sense. Based on all that he's done for us, it just makes sense that we would respond in this way, that we would be available to the Lord, that we would present ourselves. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may do what? Prove, test, evaluate what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You wanna know the will of God? Walk more consistently in fellowship with the Lord. It's gonna become clear. And so I know that was kind of a sidetrack, but the spirit of God wants to work in us. And so when we pray in the spirit, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about praying in the will of God, and he wants to keep us in constant communion and fellowship with headquarters. Why? Because that's when you can stand and you can withstand the onslaughts of the enemy most consistently. And so we've looked at the first participle there, praying. We want to look at the second one there in verse 18. It's being watchful. And and again, this is describing the manner by which we're to take up um, our last two pieces of armor. And he's going to say, be watchful which is the the idea is stay awake, be attentive. Can you imagine a soldier say, yeah, I got all my armor on now. Let's go out to the battlefield and take a nap. You know, as long as I sleep this way with my shield over us, I probably won't get hit. Soldiers don't do that. What do they do? Oftentimes you read stories about these war. You know, you read stories about soldiers in World War II where they, they run up into a bunker and they're face down in the dirt and they're there for three days straight because if they lift their head up, a sniper is going to take them out. Can you imagine laying in the dirt face first three days when nature calls, when you're hungry? Can't go anywhere. Just got to lay face down. And so you're You're alert. You're awake because at any moment, someone could run over the hill and take you out. This is the intensity that Paul is speaking with here. Being watchful to this end. Again, abstaining from sleep. Be attentive to spiritual things. Do we realize that the enemy is always ready to attack? Do we realize that at every moment of every day, the enemy is coming after us to distract us from Jesus Christ? to lead us into temptation. Do we understand that? This is why it's so important not to be asleep at the wheel, to be vigilant in our walk with the Lord and our intentionality in terms of fellowship with the Lord. In fact, he says, be watchful to this end, to this end, speaking of putting on and taking up the whole armor of God because it's needed uh, against the attacks of the enemy. We can't afford to go to sleep in the Christian life. We, it's like we... Th- We think that if we take a vacation, like the devil's going to take a vacation too, or the spiritual forces of the enemy are going to take a vacation, or the the world system's going to take a vacation. It doesn't work that way. They, They don't take vacations. They're always coming after us. And so when we're not intentional in our walk with the Lord, it becomes a super big challenge in terms of standing in victory. Also, being watchful is in the active voice. It means that we've got to proactively choose to stay awake. And oh, by the way, when you are tired and when you are lazy in our thinking, what's the easiest thing to do? Go to sleep. Go to sleep. You come to my house about 10 o'clock. After 10, I'm done. I mean, I I fall asleep on guys in Liberia in mid-sentence. They're still talking to me and I'm gone, Right? Because when you're tired, what do you do? It's natural. You, you close your eyes. You want to 
you want to go sleep. We can't afford to do that in the Christian life is what Paul is saying, especially as he's using this imagery of a battle going on around us. Now, notice also in verse 18 that he's going to use some qualifiers there for being watchful. Notice that he says, being watchful to this end. What's that first qualifier? It's with perseverance. It's the idea of doing something with intense effort, some continuity. It's the idea of continuing with something, even if there's difficulty involved, that it's it's worth doing. It's valuable in that sense. It talks about endurance. It talks about a firm persistence, if you will. The idea is don't give up. Don't ever take a nap spiritually. And you say, man, that sounds intense. It is. (laughs) I think that's this whole point of saying this. It's like, Again, the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. We, our whole mindset needs to shift in this way because it's very serious. We can't afford one moment of our Christian life to be out of fellowship with the Lord. Not one. Have you seen the works of the flesh? Have you seen the list? Just because you grew up in a Christian home or you've been a Christian for 30 years doesn't mean you're not capable of fulfilling the list of the works of the flesh. So we can't afford to be out of fellowship with the Lord for even One second, notice the second qualifier. With all supplication, again, he brings in prayer. It's the same word, one of the same words used earlier. It's making specific requests to God. Again, it's being mentally engaged. It's not God bless me. It's God, I'm facing this today. God, I know I'm gonna have to talk to this person today. God, I got this coming up. I am nervous, I am anxious, I can't handle this. Lord, I need you to step in. Lord, I am feeling my mind drawn and dragged by the world. I am to question everything that I've ever believed. I need you to insert yourself here with truth. I need to lock my eyes and my arms on you right now. I don't know where I'm going. I'm losing my bearings. Specific requests. Are you even evaluating where you're at spiritually? What's going on in the, in the mind right now for each one of us? This is something that we're talking about. It's very specific here. And it's staying awake by praying. Normally, when I pray at night, I go to sleep. This morning, I was praying, and I, and I fell asleep. Thank goodness I woke up. I would have been late. I, while I was praying, I fell asleep. So, so you can see why some of these things that Paul is saying, it, it, it's, there's some very practical uh, ideas communicated in here. Now, notice why. Go back with me to verse 18. <clears throat> notice that very last phrase. Is it going to be good if you pray and you're watchful? Is it going to be good for you? It will. It's going, to be, it's going to individually benefit you. But notice what else he says in verse 18. It's going to benefit other people. Your individual response, your individual consistency, your individual fellowship with the Lord is going to benefit who? Well, look at the next phrase. All the saints. And so that's not true of just the believers in Ephesus. It's true of us here taking up and putting on the full armor of God. It's not just for yourself. It's for everyone else around you. And to use a battle illustration again, if your shield is knocking off arrows of fire and it's going next to the guy in front of you because you are not holding it correctly, the other guy next to you is going to suffer. And the thing that we've got to understand as believers is your life is not lived in a vacuum. Your spirituality is not lived in a vacuum. 
This is why people, and, and if I offend you with this comment, I'm really sorry, I don't mean to offend you. I just believe it firmly that the local church has a role in your spiritual growth. I'm not saying, I, I'm not, trust me, I'm not saying legalistically, you gotta be here every time the door's open. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying this, that as a believer, you are not designed to live as a lone wolf Christian out by yourself. And if your mindset is that way, not only are you hurting yourself, but you are hurting other believers that could benefit from your life, that could benefit from your gifting, that can benefit from how you walk by faith. And you're taking that all out of the equation. The second, it's all about you. And the second you realize that you're thinking that it's all about you is the second you should change your mind and address that. Because it's not all about you. It will never be all about you. It is always about Jesus Christ and his agenda right now, which is to build his church and to make disciples who will follow him. And will actually take his truth that doesn't change and actually grow more in love with him every single day that it passes so that the aroma of Jesus Christ can be manifested in our life to others. And see, when we don't think this way, we think it's all about us. Our life's in a vacuum. Nobody cares what I do. I can do this. I can do this. I can go here. I can do it. And we're just flitting and flopping around in life. And we are a lone wolf out there by ourselves, independent from anything that God said would benefit us spiritually. And oh, by the way, even if you are doing fine individually, you are cheating others around you that could benefit from what you could provide. So let's get our eyes off ourselves a little bit. It's, it's a little discouraged. I don't, I don't know about you. Maybe uh, there are times in my life I like looking at myself. I'm pretty proud of what I see. And there are times where I can't stand to even live with myself. I wish I could go live somewhere else, different zip code from myself, right? And so that's typically what ends up happening. And so it's all about Jesus Christ. It's, it's all about the Lord Jesus. And so hence the need for every believer every believer, each individual believer to benefit and walk in the resources that we have in Jesus Christ. You are a wealthy child of God, wealthy. In fact, God can't even fit one more dollar bill in your bank account because he's already put it all there. He can't even squeeze one more dollar bill in your bank account because you already got it all. We need to start living that way. And we need to start walking in those resources and enjoying everything that he wants to know. And then know that everything and every response to you has an impact on other people. It's time to, to draw the circle around our feet a little bit bigger. It's, it involves other people. We need to understand that God's got a plan for that as well. So Paul says, you know what? If you guys respond this way, you're going to benefit others. And oh, by the way, why don't you benefit me too? <laughs> it's kind of deal. And, here, and for me, he's going to say now, okay? So if you're walking this way, you're going to benefit yourself and others. But notice in verse 19, he says, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And so we're going to see that Paul makes a specific prayer request. Now, who would have thought that this church in Ephesus and the way that they responded to the Lord individually could actually impact the apostle Paul. But it does. He's seeing that because now he's going to take advantage of the fact that they're in fellowship with the Lord, that they're walking with the Lord to actually pray for him these very specific requests that he has going on in his life right now. That first request is this, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly 
to make known the mystery of the gospel. And this word utterance means, it's kind of an interesting word, that he might speak intelligently, that he would use words as an expression of intelligence. Now, that's kind of fascinating because Paul was, was classically trained in the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, he had one of the best tutors, one of the best rabbis that, that existed in the world at the time, a guy named Gamaliel. So he was educated. Clearly, we have his writings. The dude's smart, right? He's, he can put together an intelligent response. So why is he praying for this? He'd almost, you know, you'd almost say like, nah, nah, I got that. Like I, I hear people sometimes like, do you get nervous when you speak? And some people just don't get nervous when they speak. I still do. I still get a little bit nervous before I speak. There's certain people that don't get nervous. I always find it interesting. I'm like, are, are you nervous about what you speak? And I was, oh no, I preached that sermon three times before. I've never understood that comment because it's like, Past success doesn't guarantee present success. I mean, you still got to get up and communicate. And so Paul's saying that I would have this utterance. And notice how he words it, that it would be given to me, that, that God would give it to me. It's a passive voice. God would give it to Paul. It's not that I may open my mouth, but that God would open my mouth. That's, that's the prayer request. Not that I would let them know everything that I know, but that God would speak through me that he would give me an intelligent manner of, of explanation of a certain message. And that's what we're going to look at. He wanted to ex- intelligently express in words to communicate uh, in a bold manner. We're going to see that word boldness here, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Now, we've been talking a lot about the mystery of the gospel in the book of Ephesians. And understand this, and I, and I think there's a, a subtlety here that we want to bring out. Do you know that the gospel itself, the message, is not a mystery? Remember, the mystery is defined as something that was not revealed before in the Old Testament, but that is being revealed now. Do you know the gospel is not a mystery? You know why, how I can say that? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. How Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel's all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus's death was predicted. Jesus's resurrection was predicted. But he says mystery of the gospel. So what's he talking about? I think it's the mystery of what God accomplished through the gospel, which is exactly what we saw in chapter three. The mystery that through the finished work of the Messiah, God would not only take care of the death penalty in full, he would provide a righteousness for everyone who would believe and that Jew and Gentile would not only be joined together in one body, but they would be united with the very Messiah who died for them. And that that was gonna be the mechanism by which God would raise anybody who trusted in Jesus from the dead. That was the mystery, the church age, what God would do in terms of bringing together believers from different ethnic backgrounds to form a brand new body that did not exist in the Old Testament. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been born again, you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone to get you to heaven. You are a part of the most unique organization, organism, I might even say, that has ever existed on planet earth. Abraham was not part of the church. Noah was not part of the church. King David was not part of the church. You are a part of the church. There's distinctions in the church that are true of you that were not true of all these great heroes of the Old Testament. We're a part of something special. We're united to the Messiah. 
never to be ununited with him. And his destiny is our destiny that we will live forever and that we'll be raised in glorified bodies because he completed the work necessary. And this is why we can know that the moment you trust in Christ, you have eternal life. That is life that never ends. That is life that lasts forever. It's because of what God has done through the work of the Messiah. This is the mystery, what he's accomplished through there. And Paul wants to intelligently express that. Now, what's really fascinating about that is Paul here in this particular request is most likely referring to his appearance before Caesar. Remember, the reason Paul's in prison, he has appealed to Caesar. He's going to have his day in court where he has to defend himself. And he would like to have wisdom and clarity and an and intelligent speech explaining why the Jews are after him in such a way because the Romans thought what? They thought Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. So you can imagine a pagan king, Caesar, thinking, why is this guy here? This just sounds like a Jewish problem. Why am I dealing with this? And Paul needs an intelligent, he wants to explain this intelligently for them. Not only does he want to explain it intelligently, he wants to do it boldly. He wants to be given frankness and freedom in speaking. And so he wanted to do this regarding a single message, the mystery of the gospel. And I find this incredible. And it's not that Paul didn't want prayer for this. What I find incredible is he's sitting under house arrest and he doesn't say, pray for my release. You notice that? That's just interesting. He's, he's entrusting the Lord with his release. I'm not saying he didn't pray for it. It's just interesting that he doesn't ask for it here. He's like, I just want to preach the message to pray that God would give me more opportunities to preach the message. And, and specifically in front of Caesar, I want to explain it clearly. So he's got an understanding that everyone in the court would learn it and understand it. And you know why Paul would make this request? Because by the time he got here, he had had experiences like this. If you remember the story back in Acts, when he gets arrested in Jerusalem, he's taken into uh, imprisonment in Caesarea. He spends two years there. He has this experience with uh, Felix in Acts 24, where he gets to explain the mystery of the gospel. And then he's got this great story in Acts 26. Go, go with me there because I want you to see um, that Paul is most likely asking for this specific request because he's experienced it before. Look at Acts 26 and um, starting in verse 19. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, King Agrippa has a, has a Jewish customs background. And Festus, was the, the gentleman in charge of Paul's jurisdiction at this time. He had no clue on Jewish customs. And, and Paul had just appealed to Caesar and Festus was gonna have to write up a report to send with Paul as to why this guy was appealing to Caesar and he didn't know what to write. And so he brings Agrippa in to kind of help hear the story to give him some wisdom. And so Agrippa is there. He's, Paul is now speaking to him. He says, but declared first, this is verse 20, to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent, uh, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple, tried to kill me. Therefore, having attained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people. And then notice this, and to the Gentiles. 
This is what he's talking about in terms of the mystery. Now, this is great. Look at verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. He's like, something's wrong with you, Paul, man. Verse 25, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And you see there, he's probably a silent, like, nod. He goes, I know that you do believe. And then look what Agrippa says to him. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. God had given him intelligent expression. He had seen a Gentile leader almost respond to the gospel personally. So he's praying for that here with Caesar. Could you imagine if Caesar at the time, which was Nero, trusted in Jesus Christ, how that would have changed the course of human history? Wow, pretty incredible. We know that didn't happen, um, but it doesn't mean that Paul didn't get a chance to explain it clearly. So this is what he's praying for. And then notice what he says. He goes on to say in verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And for which, what's he talking about? It's because of this message. He's, he's an ambassador in chains. He's, he's in jail because of the proclamation of this message. Typically, when you get put in jail for something, you stop doing that something, don't we? I mean, if I get put in jail for something, I'd usually stop doing that because I don't want to stay in jail. Paul's like, nah, nah, let's ramp it up. <laughs> I want to do it more. I want to do it more. I'm okay with this jail time. I want to do it more. And it's also uh, ironic that he refers to himself as an ambassador here, which again, an ambassador is what? Well, it's, a, it's an envoy. It's a representative of another power, right? You're representing somebody else, a, a country, a king. And one of the things that's ironic is ambassadors usually have what? Diplomatic immunity. They usually don't end up in jail when they're representing somebody else. They don't end up in jail. So it's just ironic that Paul ends up there. But it shouldn't have been ironic because what does Jesus say in John 15, 20? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, he, he, he expected this and he was okay with this. And this is why he wanted to go on communicating the message. And now we're gonna look at Paul's second prayer request. It doesn't have to do with his official court appearance now. This is just in general, he's gonna pray for something. It sounds actually very similar but I think he's going general here. And that second request is this, that in it, speaking of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thus, Paul basically repeats the same prayer request, but this time he's got a different outcome. It's not for this official court appearance. It's for generically that he would be bold and frank in his speech in terms of communicating the gospel. And you know, what's so interesting is at some level, you know, you, you kind of work your way backwards here. If Paul is making this request, what does it indicate? He recognized that he needed divine aid in being frank and bold with this message, which, which indicates what? Well, we're going to see what I think it indicates. And I think it indicates simply that Paul is just like the rest of us. That's hard to believe that because we like to put people on a pedestal. And, and Paul, I mean, if he's not on a pedestal, he's definitely up a couple steps, right? I mean, it's toward the pedestal. But Paul was normal, like us. Paul had fears. Paul had doubts in terms of his ministry. 
Paul questions some of the things that he did. I mean, you see this throughout, but oftentimes we don't think of him that way. We just think of him as this like, you know, bold, not going to take any guff from anybody. He's just going to scream the message out. He doesn't care what happens to him, all this kind of stuff. And I want to show you a story in Acts where there was times that he used caution in what he was communicating, that he was, dare I say it, afraid of what might happen to him. And you say, how could he be afraid? The guy had been stoned. The guy had been beaten in Philippi. The guy had been put in stocks. And, and my response to that is, yeah. That's probably why he's afraid. That doesn't feel too good. I may, I may be forced to bungee jump someday, but I'm not gonna sign up to do it again. I, I may be beaten one day for my faith, but I'm not gonna get, sign up to get beaten again. So there was times that fear came into the Apostle Paul. And one of the great examples is this is found in Acts 18. Go with me there. I want us to turn there and see this passage because it's really a, a fascinating section that fits right with what Paul's prayer request is here in, in Ephesians 6. Paul is uh, arriving to Corinth for the first time. He had just left Athens where he'd given that famous sermon on Mars Hill. Uh, before Athens, he had been up in Thessalonica. And before Thessalonica, he'd been in Philippi beaten, putting in stocks. And in verse one, it says, and after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Then he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, I want you to notice something in verse five. So he's in the synagogues, he's with Jews, he's persuading them, but I want you to notice a very significant thing that happens in verse five. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, so he was by himself. Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. Notice what it says. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. What does that tell you? He had not made that connection yet for them. What was he persuading them of then? Well, go back to chapter 17 in verse 2. We learn what Paul's customs were going into a synagogue. Acts 17 verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about there? Old Testament. Reason with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, not Jesus, I mean, Jesus is the Christ, but he's starting generic for the sake of his audience. He's showing that the Messiah would have to suffer and die. And this is what he's going to go on, that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now I'm going to stop there. You're going to want to read on in verse three, and that's okay. We're going to get there. But this is where he started. He said, guys, you have an Old Testament Jewish people at the time, Jewish people today, they still don't know what to do with two types of passages in the Old Testament. Conquering king, Messiah, suffering servant, Messiah. How do those come together? They don't know. It's, so what do they do? They ignore the suffering servant. They buy into the king. He's coming again, king, king to reign, Messiah king. I don't know what to do with these suffering passages. I don't know how to put it in. I believe that's what Paul was doing for them in the synagogues. He's reasoning, he's persuading, he's showing how both of these things are going to be true. And then look at Thessalonica when he's got his, his full group with him. End of verse three. He, he demonstrated that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, 
This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He identifies Jesus as the Messiah. But go back over to chapter 18 now, verse five. He hadn't done that yet. But when Silas and Timothy came, he had backup. When the spirit of God compelled him, he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Why did Paul do that? Well, we're gonna get some insight as we keep reading. Look at verse six. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now notice what happens in verse nine. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. You see, Paul got scared from time to time. He was afraid. And it took a vision from the Lord Jesus to say, hang in there, Paul. I'm with you, Paul. I'll protect you, Paul. Keep trucking along. Keep moving forward. And so Paul had had this experience by the time he writes Ephesians. So he knows that he's capable of getting afraid. He knows that he's capable of not speaking boldly and frankly about the gospel. Do you know that about yourself? Do you know that that's ca- you're capable of that? Clamming up in a moment when you can share the message? Shutting it down? Nervous? You know, Maybe someone's in the room you don't want to disappoint. You don't want them to think poorly of you, so you just don't say anything. We need the same thing. We need the same exact prayer that Paul did. Notice that he says this, that it's, it's a message that he ought to speak. It means it's, it's necessary. It's inevitable. It's something that came from a sense of duty. This is something that was done that he needed to do from compulsion. I believe it was an internal compulsion to share the message that he knew. You know, Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And, you know, much was given to the apostle Paul. But you know, I look around this room and I know many of you and I know the type of training that you've received. I know the type of teaching that you've received. We've got a responsibility. We, we've got, we should have a compulsion within our gut to share what we know. And it's not because we're better than anybody else. I mean, God forbid, if you think you're better than you don't understand grace. The whole concept of grace is you're getting something you don't deserve. And so why wouldn't we share that with others? We need the same type of prayer. We need the same type of boldness or frankness in speaking. And obviously, Paul had been given much. Now, did God answer this prayer request? Man, this is encouraging. Uh, He did. And we see this from multiple passages that that God answered this specific prayer request at this time. How do we know? There's going to be a guy in heaven that you're going to get to meet. His name's Onesimus. He was a worthless slave in the Roman Empire at the time. He belonged to a believer named Philemon. He, as we learn from the book of Philemon, he stole from his master. He ran away. And coincidentally, he ends up in Rome. He ends up where Paul is under house arrest. He ends up hearing the message and trusting Jesus Christ for his salvation. You're going to get to meet him one day, those of you that are born again. It happened at this time while Paul was under house arrest. Look at Philemon 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten. It's a spiritually begotten. Obviously, he didn't give birth to the guy. While in my chains. 
This one blows me away. This is Philippians 4, 20, 21 through 22. Paul is closing out the book to Philippians, another book that he wrote while he was in jail at this time. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. But listen to this, especially those who are of Caesar's household. The praetorian guard, the, the guards that were actually guarding Paul during house arrest were considered culturally as being a part of Caesar's household. So he may have been talking about even some of the guards, but he may have even been talking about some of Caesar's family members. See, all of that happened while he was in prison in Rome under house arrest because the Lord gave him frankness and boldness and speech. And so that's why it's so encouraging to know that it's not where you do ministry. Sometimes we get caught up in geographical situations and locations and like, oh, I can't do ministry. I can't. You, you are a minister of the gospel wherever you go. And we've got to kind of take that mindset with us. Next week, we're going to close out the book of Ephesians. Um, if you missed any part of the study, next week's a great week to come because we're going to do a 30,000-foot overview of the entire book. We're going to get it all. Yeah, at least that's my plan. 30,000-foot overview of the entire book, and uh, we'll close out the book and do that as well next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's great to see our heroes like the Apostle Paul, even like us at times, Lord. It's just incredible to see that. It, it, it makes us in many ways just feel closer to the saints throughout the ages. I appreciate Josh and the worship team even taking us back. I had great memories of, of saints who have departed, who were in churches when I was singing those songs. It was just a, a rich time to remember that. But it's also a rich time this morning to remember the Apostle Paul and what he faced and the prayer requests that he gave and to understand that you've got resources available to us at our disposal so that we might stand in victory with you. And we just pray we would utilize those more consistently. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.